All right, we're back. You know, it's it's great to have a guest like Mary Roach on for I, I guess it's I guess Mr. Rose, it's our fourth visit with her. I believe so. You know, it's funny. There is kind of a freshness dating on uh, on authors and their willingness to talk about uh, their latest efforts after they've gone a certain amount of time. I think they just <laughs> they just don't want to go back. Although we have looked up a few people who who'd written books years earlier who were who were more than willing to talk to us. So I guess I guess it evens out. Well, sometimes they forget what they've written and have to consult their own book for answers. Well, I'm glad we don't do that. Once we talk about something here in the air, we have total recall. Uh, uh, eh, maybe not. This might be a good chance to mention that if you are uh, new to this show or, or just maybe not as familiar with it as you might be, the best way to access us, we think, is going through our website, radioparallax.com. I know others out there are using different means. Someone pointed out to me recently that, yeah, they were looking at the shows, but it's a shame that there weren't summaries of what was in all the old shows. And I'm like, well, yes, there are. I do need to get schooled on this. But yes, if you'd like to look up a guest uh, using our website, you can go to the second page, find the search bar, and then type in, say, Senator George McGovern or Dan Shore. And yes, we did thoughtfully provide you with a list of our guests. However, <laughs> it hasn't been updated in many a year, so there's there's going to be some omissions there. But yes, uh, there's still a lot of folks you can find that way. Now, one short week ago, yours truly attended, although it's hard to believe, his 50th high school reunion. Well, more correctly, the 50th anniversary high school reunion. We haven't had 50 of them. <laughs> I'm happy to report that after talking up what we've been doing here on this program for the last couple of decades, uh, uh, at least one high school chum took a listen and went, hey, this this is pretty good. He especially liked our interview with one of our high school teachers, Mr. Mark Mattingly, who's been, uh, been a great guest in the past and I think will be again in the future, as well as our, uh, our talk with General Chuck Yeager. The general was very generous in giving us uh, some time and we, we were actually face-to-face for that one, unlike most of our interviews, which are conducted over the phone. The general did have some interesting anecdotes, which I can promise you never will appear on this program. And doggone it, this, this just reminds me of, of, of just one of the bad moments we've had over the past 20 years, in that I failed to ask the obvious follow-up question, when, while we were having lunch in a cafe up in Grass Valley somewhere, the general mentioned, you know, I know what's at Area 51. And yes, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I, I didn't then ask, okay, what? Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain it's not captured alien spacecraft. Well, he told me it was all the leftover crap from Area 50. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think that I need to, uh, to sit down, organize my thoughts, and, 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 and talk about what it's like to go back and see some people you haven't seen in some cases for 50 years and get the highlight reel of, hey, how'd the last half century go? I would note that I, that I heard a lot of stories as I was milling through the crowd of, of, of it, was, it was actually a four-year um, extravaganza. The class of 70, which was postponed due to COVID through a reunion, asked us to join them and then, you know, had the next two years on top of that join us. So it was 70 to 74. Pretty good turnout in Fremont, California, about 300 people. 67, I believe, from my year. And um, I can assure you, dear listener, there's some interesting stories that uh, this need to be tracked down and told. Just to give you a teaser on, on one of them, 
One of my classmates described how it was that, you know, he was in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I guess, dealing drugs. And uh, while maneuvering his convertible around one of the curvy roads up there in the mountains, he, I, I, guess, I guess you would call it, failed to negotiate the curve. And yes, it had everything to do with the drugs. He admitted to being high as a kite on cocaine and a little bit drunk to boot. And he just had a very vivid description of the car turning over, rolling down the hillside. He was saved by the roll bar. And afterwards decided his life needed a bit of cleaning up, which, which he managed to accomplish. In another case, one of our high school footballers described being up in, in, in gambling countries, somewhere up in Nevada, where he was hanging out with um, one of the high rollers, the kind of guy that, you know, they comp multiple rooms to in, in the hotels, the kind of guy who by my classmates' report, might go there and win a million and might go there and lose a million. My personal feeling is more often he goes there and loses a million because that's what the math dictates. But he described how this guy asked for a bottle of wine, you know, their best bottle of wine, and it turned out their best bottle of wine was $25,000. When the bottle of wine appeared, another person in the party, a woman accompanying, I guess, the date of one of the other participants noted that this bottle of wine cost more than my college education and I guess threw her napkin down and stomped off. This, however, did not stop the fellas from drinking six of them. I can't verify this story, but, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to believe it. Although after they drank, I suppose, $150,000 worth of wine, the guy asked, for, asked if they had any more and they said, yeah, I think we have one more in the back. To which he turned to my classmate and said, okay, let's you and me share this one. Anyway, it was an amusing event, and also uh, something that, by its very nature, makes you think. A lot of classmates were no longer with us. A lot of the significant others of those in attendance were no longer with us. More than once, I couldn't help think of that scene from This Is Spinal Tap, when the band of dimwit British rockers decide to go on a side tour of Graceland. They're quietly sitting in the backyard with all of these memorials and wreaths and items dedicated to the late, great Elvis. At which point one of them says, it gives you perspective. To which his bandmate added, yeah, too bloody much perspective. Yeah, rest assured, more than once, I was, I was experiencing too bloody much perspective. At any rate, I still think I need to gather my thoughts on, on that event, put something together and, uh, and, and chat about it and a future installment of this program, maybe next week. Let's just do one of our more regular programs at this point, starting with an item I'm looking at from The Week magazine a couple weeks back, a reprint from an, I guess, op-ed piece from the Mail on Sunday from the UK. Author Peter Hitchens noted that Britain had done its youth no favor by showering them with top marks. When the UK's university entrance exams, known as the A-levels, were canceled last summer because of COVID, high school teachers were asked to assign grades based on students' previous work. The result was outrageous grade inflation, with 38% of all A-level entries getting an A or A+, up from 25% in 2019. This year, the exams were canceled again, and the results were even more preposterous. A staggering 44.8% got an A. Now, notes Hitchens, all of our universities are oversubscribed. There's no way to tell which students truly deserve admittance. 
To which he added, leftists, of course, are delighted and they're pushing to abolish objective tests altogether. If they get their way and the scrapping of exams becomes the norm, then progress up the educational ladder will be a matter of opaque assessment, politically correct quotas, and social mobility. I'm not sure we can totally blame the leftists for this. He does note that we have gifted today's students with a mountain of unearned self-esteem. He said it's frightening to contemplate what will happen when these youngsters eventually become our engineers and doctors. And here's a couple items in follow-up to our discussion last week about how it was that Norm MacDonald got fired from NBC because uh, NBC executive Don Olmeyer didn't like the fact that he kept making jokes about O.J. Simpson because O.J. Simpson was a pal. Well, you know, speaking truth to power is, 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 is always a dangerous business. We did not mention the passing, I don't think, on this program of Ed Asner. And he's worth a couple of our minutes. Known to the obituaries, Asner broke a personal rule for himself when he auditioned for the Mary Tyler Moore show back in 1969, which was Don't Do Comedy. The then 40-year-old actor considered the genre a career dead end. But he said he agreed to try out for the part of Lou Grant, Moore's coarse but idealistic boss at a Minneapolis TV newsroom, because he was the greatest character I ever came across. Asner would play the journalist for the sitcom's 1970 through 1977 run and for five seasons on the spinoff, Lou Grant. Along the way, he won three Emmys for Best Supporting Actor and two for Best Lead, the only actor ever to receive comedy and drama Emmys for playing the same role. In real life, he was as uncompromising as his on-screen persona. Ed Asner was a real-world political activist, loudly championing organized labor, gay rights, and other issues. When CBS canceled Lou Grant in 1982, citing declining ratings, Asner insisted that he was being punished for condemning the Reagan administration's support of the junta in El Salvador. He later said, the price we pay for activism in this town is a big one. And Variety agreed with this, noting in its obituary that when in the early 80s Asner outraged conservatives by helping to co-found a group that sent medical aid to leftist rebels in El Salvador, sponsors Kimberly Clark, Vidal Sassoon, and Cadbury pulled their ads. That was noted by Bloomberg.com. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that Lou Grant got canceled two weeks later. Lucky for him, although Asner remained outspoken about controversial topics... He remained an actor still in demand. I had a chance to see him performing live when they were doing a series of Norman Corwin, I guess you call them vignettes, at the uh, Museum of Television and Radio down in L.A. He was good. And during my stint at Capitol Public Radio some time back, I did, I did actually get a chance to speak with him directly when we were talking about, I think it was, gosh, it was... The Declaration of Independence. I think producer Norman Lear had had bought a copy of it, and I guess there are many, many copies that they made of the Declaration, and frankly, I don't remember the details. (laughs) I can't pretend it was a memorable chat, but I'm glad I had a chance to speak with him. And here's a rather surprising story about someone else who paid the price in Hollywood for, um, well, I, I wouldn't say speaking out. In this case, it was more like a case of, in this case, it was more like speaking with. The guy we'd be talking about is Billy Bush, George Bush's cousin. Five years ago, he rather famously um, saw his Access Hollywood tape reach the public. 
Billy Bush was a correspondent on NBC's entertainment shows. He was snickering as Donald Trump boasted on a hot mic about his unwanted sexual advances. When they got off the bus to meet an actress that Trump had just been talking about, Bush said to her, how about a little hug for the Donald? It seems like less than a felony to me, but, you know, on, on, on Billy Bush's part. But when someone leaked the 2005 footage to the Washington Post a month before the 2016 election, well, uh, I'd like to say that all hell broke loose, but not enough hell, I would say, broke loose, because no sooner did that hit the airwaves than the same day they dropped the hacked Hillary Clinton John Podesta emails to try and divert the attention off the Donald. And doggone it, it kind of worked. But not well enough for Billy Bush, apparently. Good old NBC evidently promised him his job would be safe when the clip first weren't public, and then, of course, turned around and canned him just the same. Reportedly, he spent several months drinking whiskey alone in his apartment. And frankly, dear listener, if you ever considered doing likewise, we, we recommend against it. What do you mean? <laughs> Reportedly... Billy then got divorced and said, I'm paralyzed, to his brother Jonathan, noting, I can't get off my couch. I can't stop crying. What an amateur. But I guess he wound up begging for a job at Fox, of course, and they they gave him a one-year trial, and doggone it, I guess he's back on the saddle again. On the other hand, the guy that leaked the Clinton emails, as far as we know, he was not crying on the couch drinking whiskey alone in his apartment. In fact, whoever he was didn't suffer because we we still don't know who he or she is. This might be a good time to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, by all accounts, it was a good week last week for beaming me up with the news that William Shatner, yes, Captain Kirk at age 90, has now become the oldest human being to go up into space. Although it is a suborbital trip into space, but it still counts. And he definitely did not achieve warp speed. And to our knowledge, no Romulan or Klingon spacecraft were observed on the journey. It was, on the other hand, according to the Wall Street Journal, a bad week, I guess you'd say, for the kids today, when the WSJ reported that old-school mafiosi are complaining that younger mobsters are soft and spend too much time texting. You know, this, this is really a shame to witness. What's happening to the work ethic in the mafia? The older generation by now would have been cutting their teeth, kidnapping, loan sharking, organizing hits, but, you know... One member of the Colombo crime family said, oh, everything's on the phone with them. And it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, for I guess you'd call it good Samaritanism. But this item, apparently a Turkish construction worker was reported missing in a forest. Yes, Behan Mutlu, age 50, was drinking with his friends when he wandered off into the woods. His wife reported him missing after he didn't answer cell phone calls. His search party gathered, and when Mutu saw them, he joined them. But wouldn't you know it, when the searchers started shouting his name into the forest, he became confused, and apparently even asked them who they were looking for. When they told him, he said, I'm here.
always looking for good news items to report upon, and we definitely have one here with the news that Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov were honored for their, quote, courageous, unquote, work. This is, this is for the, the Peace Prize, I should clarify. But we're also considered, quote, representatives of all journalists who stand up for this ideal in a world in which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. In 2012, Russell founded Rappler, a news website that the committee noted had focused critical attention on President Rodrigo Duterte's rather controversial and certainly murderous anti-drug campaign in the Philippines. She and Rappler, quote, have also documented how social media is being used to spread fake news, harass opponents, and manipulate public discourse, said the Nobel Committee. For his part, Muratov was one of the founders of the 1993 independent Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which the Nobel Committee called the most independent newspaper in Russia today with a fundamentally critical attitude towards power. They added the newspaper's fact-based journalism, what a concept, fact-based journalism and professional integrity have made it an important source of information on censorable aspects of Russian society rarely mentioned in other media. It also noted that six of his journalists were killed since its founding. It's also worth noting that uh, the former Soviet leader in 1990, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Mikhail Gorbachev, used some of his Nobel Award money to help fund what would become Novaya Gazeta. Gorbachev congratulated Muratov, calling him a wonderful, brave, and honest journalist and my friend. We would editorialize that it's, it's not just the Philippines that has a problem with social media being used to spread fake news, harass opponents, and manipulate public discourse. Anyway, we certainly salute these two Nobel Prize recipients. We've done about all we can to bring on responsible dissident journalists on this program uh, over the last couple decades. And, you know, we will continue to do likewise in the future. And there are lots of themes we keep harping on on this program because, well, they're just not getting the proper play, we think, in the mainstream media. But when you know it, I've got a piece here from the L.A. Times I think I need to quote from. Water... The water issues here in California are not going to get any better as our drought drags into, God help us, our third year. Let's hope not. But as we talk into this microphone, we're in the middle of October and nothing's falling from the skies yet. Anyway, here's a column from the LA Times from Steve Lopez from last week, which I think I will just read from. Doug Thompson couldn't believe what he'd just been told. His wife, a botanist, was advising a Coachella Valley Country Club on drought resistant landscaping. Keep that in mind as we continue. He's advising on drought resistant landscaping. And Thompson, who got to talking with the groundskeeper, asked how much water it takes to irrigate a golf course. Recalled Thompson, he proudly said they just computerized their system and they were down to just 1.2 million gallons a night. Thompson, an ecologist who leads natural history expeditions, said, I, th- I thought I didn't hear him correctly. So about 30 minutes later, I asked him again, and he said the same thing, 1.2 million gallons a night. At that point, Thompson and his wife, now keep in mind, his wife's lecturing the country club on drought-resistant landscaping, became keenly aware of all the lush green golf courses set against the parched landscape of the Coachella Valley which is in the desert. How many golf courses are down there? Well, about 120. 
many of them shoulder to shoulder across the desert floor, complete with decorative ponds, fountains, and streams. It's in fact one of the highest concentrations of golf courses in the world. Said Thompson, from the homework we've done, the smaller courses use at least several hundred thousand gallons a night, but the larger courses are in the one million gallon range or more. It's not only an outrage, he added, but many months of the year, it's too hot to play golf in the desert, yet the watering continues. Jumping ahead in the piece, turns out the Coachella Valley Water District serves 105 of those golf courses, and it draws water from, yes, the California Water Project, also the Colorado River, and, well, the aquifer, just pump it out of the ground. In their defense, the golf courses argue that much of the water they use to irrigate is is non-potable. But it's pretty undeniable that those 120 golf courses do indeed use massive amounts of precious, increasingly scarce, clean water. The Valley, if you're keeping score, is less than 1% of Southern California's population, but 28% of its golf courses. Now, back in 2014, Jerry Brown signed legislation requiring communities uh, to develop groundwater sustainability strategies, and the CVWD had touted its progress in stabilizing and increasing underground water levels. But the piece notes, well, that's partly because the valley is able to recharge the aquifer with water from the Colorado River and water which is pumped down from Northern California. I was helping a friend move recently, and... She noted that the neighbor was out there regularly spraying the grass with Roundup to kill it off and and replace it, I guess, with uh, drought-resistant landscaping. To which I have to say, well, I don't know. Yes, we're in a drought. Yes, water is precious. It is scarce. But if people are, you know, berating you for the fact that you're not shutting off the water while brushing your teeth to conserve that couple of ounces of water, well, I'd say you can probably relax. And we looked it up, by the way. The average household uses 300 gallons of water a day. So this golf course in question was 4,000 homes, and it's one of 120 golf courses. I think it's clear that a comprehensive plan uh, is lacking and, and is needed. Anyway, ecologist Thompson and botanist Cobley, neither of whom are golfers, did have a suggestion for Mr. Steve Lopez, writing in the L.A. Times, they suggested that uh, they might want to consider using Lynx-style golf courses. Common in other countries, they use far less water. You tee off on a patch of green, and you putt on a patch of green, but most of the area in between is natural and not irrigated. What a concept, said Thompson. I got nothing against golf, but they've got to find a different way of doing it. I know, Ms. Greenland, AstroTurf is not a good idea. Remember how he made fun of Gavin Newsom soon after he took office? He held a press conference and announced that he was not in favor of Jerry Brown's two-tunnel solution to the... This is supposed to be a solution to the ecological problems of the California Delta, where the Delta smelt, formerly the keystone species in, in the Delta, has, I think, I think been missing in action now for the third straight year. We really got to bring Dan Bacher back on this program, Ms. McMillan. Dan is certainly on top of that issue, and more, which we'll have something to say about shortly. But let's just reverse, reverse tape back to Jerry Brown. It was argued that the, the Bay Delta Conservation Program was going to improve the ecology of the Delta. And it was going to do this while it removed more water from the Delta. 
Now, if you've ever had a tropical fish tank, and I'm sure many of you have, you know they require a bit of maintenance to keep their you know, internal ecology on the right side of things. We asked on this show many years ago, if anybody could explain to us how it was you could say, well, remove water from your fish tank and improve its balance, or remove water from the delta and improve its balance, we needed someone to explain how that was done. So far, the lines are dead. But when good old Gavin Newsom came in and said he was not in favor of Jerry Brown's twin tunnel program, as we reported, there was a gasp in the room and and people just almost started applauding. Unfortunately, a sentence later, Newsom added, he was in favor of a one-tunnel solution. Well, he may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, and he's certainly in bed with ag, as everyone is, every major politician is in California. Actually, I should clarify that. Big ag. Not just ag. Big ag. My grandpa was a farmer. This has nothing to do with the kind of small farm operations that... um, used to prevail in this state. But whatever. We, we didn't think Gavin Newsom deserved to be recalled. We thought that was, you know, just evil machinations by the Republican Party in California, which feels this may be the only way they could have gotten anybody into the governor's office using this backdoor method of a recall. And, and let's face it, it has worked. Well, that's how we got the governator. Anyway, um, we've expressed some skepticism in the past that this idea of massive building and changing zoning is going to fix everything in California because I just don't think it is. But we're out of time. I can't really belabor that point any further today. But in the couple minutes we have left, we should probably make some reference to the Pandora Papers. Yet another leak has taken place. In this case... A trove of 11.9 million files from 14 legal and financial services firms operating in the British Virgin Islands, Panama, Belize, and elsewhere. Tax shelters. It's revealed that at least 35 current and former world leaders and hundreds of public officials in more than 90 countries have hidden billions of dollars from the public and from the tax authorities. Haaretz and Israel's pointed out that these papers are especially embarrassing to King Abdullah of Jordan. He's tried to portray himself as a devoted father of a struggling nation, which has a 25% unemployment rate. But the leaked documents reveal that even as he was asking Jordanians to embrace austerity and for the World Bank to provide more economic aid, Abdullah was using shell companies to snap up luxury homes. Among them, a $23 million California Ocean View property. It's sad, isn't it? How are we going to fix this problem of the, the wealthy skipping taxes? We've talked about how the big tech companies, as multinationals have done forever, it seems, at least at least a good century, century and a half, and that's probably about right, have managed to play a shell game. No, we didn't make our money here. We made it over there. You know, Apple can say, no, no, we're not an American company. We're Irish. Can't you tell? Anyway, we'll take some pot shots at that in future shows. In the minute or so we got left, we're going to also go out on a limb and advocate for instant replay in baseball. I'm sure many of you are watching a few days ago when a bad call ended the Giants-Dodgers game. That means the Dodgers are going to go on and to the championship series and maybe the World Series, and the Giants are not. If you're watching, you know that was a check swing. He didn't go around. It wasn't a strike. 
My friend Jerry Rose was at the game and said <laughs> everybody there knew it wasn't a strike. Certainly everybody watching TV knew it wasn't a strike. I guess the only guy that didn't know it wasn't a strike was the first base umpire. And there is remediation available for this. There's cameras everywhere. They're watching every pitch. There's, you know, baseball has to have cameras everywhere in the stadium, you know, to keep the game looking interesting. You know, camera goes to pitcher, camera goes to catcher, camera goes to batter, camera goes to like some guy in the stands, camera goes to a guy chewing gum in the dugout, camera goes to a guy in the other dugout as he spits. The technology is there to, to fix this. Come on, baseball needs to spend a little money or just change the rules and just, just take care of this. Didn't mean they were going to win the game. You know, he might have struck out on the next pitch. Then again, he might have hit it out of the park on the next pitch. That's just the nature of the beast. As part of our efforts for this program, I subscribed to numerous publications. One of them is the L.A. Times. And I got to say, the way the L.A. Times covered this was rather irksome. Yeah, sure, Giants fans can complain about, you know, a bad call. But what about the game earlier in the year when there was a bad call and a check swing that went against us? What, what about that, huh? Anyway, my aforementioned friend Jerry happened to be the guy, along with his wife, Debbie, the, the, the couple that the camera panned over at game end to show the disappointed Giant fan. Well, Jerry's had his ups and downs. We talked to him on this very program, and you can find him in our archives discussing how it was he happened to luck out and catch Barry Bonds' 71st home run back in the day. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who is not sitting in the dark drinking whiskey, at least not right now. And our thanks again to Mary Roach, author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Pretty darn good book. We hope when she writes her next book, we'll have her on to talk about that too. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you real soon, I hope.